Good morning, everyone. Great to see you, all of you online. Glad that you're here with us. It's good to be together. Hey, a few weeks ago, we had a power outage at the church. Some of you might have known that, some of you might not. So uh, fortunately, it was not during the service. It was just after the first service and right before the second service. But it was classic. Think of all the times you've had a power outage at home or uh, maybe at work. Um, you know, it gets dark, so you can't see clearly at all, right? Uh, any equipment you're depending on, internet, appliances, whatever, all that equipment stops working, right? And then on top of that, uh, there's a brief moment where you feel confused and disoriented and, and, and during the power outage. And as, as followers of Christ, here's what we know. We know that the power of God is at work in our lives. But there are times in our lives where we experience a spiritual power outage. And really the same things that are true of a physical power outage, we kind of experience in a different way with a spiritual power outage, that when you're not walking close to the Lord, uh, you're, you're maybe, you know, living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin, whatever leads you to be far from God, not trusting in God, not experiencing God, in that moment of spiritual power outage, you can't see clearly, right? You can't discern things going on in life very well. Uh, the Holy Spirit has equipped you with gifts for the work of the body and for the kingdom work in the world. That equipment goes offline, it's like, it's like it's there, but it's not being utilized, right? And uh, you're confused. It's easy to be confused and disoriented as you walk through life. And so we see a parallel there with this power outage. In fact, I want you just to take a few seconds and just think about in the last few months or even the last year where you felt like you've had that spiritual power outage. And maybe you had increased anxiety, increased fear. Uh, you felt hopeless, powerless, uh, helpless in, in certain situations. And think through that. And when we think through those power outages, here's what we do know. God hasn't changed. God's power hasn't diminished, right? There's nothing that's going wrong on God's end. So then where's the problem? <laughs> the problem lies with us. That's what's going on. There's a disconnect in our understanding of who God is. Uh, there's a disconnect in our level of trust in God and our sense of identity as God's child. And so instead of turning back to the Lord in those moments, we're tempted to turn toward ourselves or for what other people can do for us in those moments of weaknesses. And what we need to remember is that we got to come back to the Lord and grab a hold of the strength of who God is and what he's done, specifically in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or as we refer to, the gospel or the good news. And that's our emphasis right now as a church, the gospel. We're drilling down deeper on how those gospel truths actually shape every single day of our life, not just at conversion, but as we walk our life as a believer in Christ. And so when we think of the gospel, and we, we often summarize that as Jesus living the life we could never live, Jesus dying the death that we should have died, and Jesus rising from the grave to give us new life now and an eternal life forever enjoying him, when we understand that, there's a power that's unleashed in our lives. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Anyone who believes... So are you experiencing the power of God at work in your life? Now, you might be sitting there thinking, I don't know. Like, what do I look for? Let me give you some warning signs, right, that we need to watch out for when we're not operating with God's power in our life. Uh, you are probably not experiencing God's power at work in you and through you. 
You uh, probably don't see or experience answers to prayer, which, by the way, sometimes the answers to prayer from God are no, <laughs> right? So sometimes God's answer is no, not just yes. Also, sometimes you feel like there's something lacking or deficient in your life. You may um, find yourself falling for false teaching or misinformation or conspiracy theories more easily. Uh, You don't see God opening or closing doors in your life when you're praying about opportunity and next steps and different decisions in your life. Maybe you're not feeling like you're experiencing God's wisdom or guidance when you come to Him in prayer. Um, You're definitely not grieved by sinful actions and choices and behaviors and attitudes. They don't, they don't grieve you when you're not operating off God's power. And so those are some things you, you probably are experiencing, as well as you probably are experiencing a constant agitation and anger, a lack of holiness and purity, a lack of desire to obey God, a lack of desire, uh, a lack of compassion for other people, a lack of generosity, uh, increased cynicism, and a desire to control or manipulate other people or situations. You might also be experiencing increased levels of fear and anxiety and helplessness and laziness and selfishness. Also, you become consumed with man's earthly agendas rather than your heavenly Father's agenda and will. These are some of the things that we can look for if we're wondering if we're not operating off God's power. And when we experience these types of warning signs, we find ourselves in a power struggle, right? Uh, The spirit versus flesh, heaven and hell, good, bad, evil, you know, all these kinds of things. I just want to encourage you with this thought, and this is really the big takeaway for today, that we're not fighting for power. Like when we have power struggles in this life, we're not fighting for power. We're actually fighting from power power, right? When you think about uh, God as a beloved child of God, walking in awareness of the truth of the gospel, uh, we're not in a battle between good and evil to see who's going to win. We're not seeing good and evil kind of, you know, where's, it going, where's the scale going to tilt today toward, you know, good or evil? See, Jesus won the war on the cross. The empty tomb is God's victory flag over death and sin and evil. God's already won. His power has already been demonstrated. And one day, on his timeline, according to his will, he will finally and fully put to rest all evil, all death, all sin. But for now, he has given us power as his children to operate in as we go toward that day. And as ones who love and trust in Jesus, as people filled with the Holy Spirit of God, as God's power is at work in our lives, we can walk secure in tough times. We can walk in holiness before our God. And we can walk in truth and can live under God's power and authority because of who Jesus is and our faith in Christ. That releases the power in our lives that God's made available. One of our recommended reads this quarter is, um, or this year, is a book called Above All by a pastor named J.D. Greer. We're using that material in our life groups as well. He says this on this topic. He says, apart from the gospel... Our ingenious, life-change strategies will still lack staying and saving power. Apart from the gospel, our kindness to the poor will only make people comfortable for a while before they perish eternally. Apart from the gospel, the world we reshape through our politics will be every bit as bad as the one we're trying to reform. Apart from the gospel, self-help strategies will only lead us to pride if we succeed or despair if we fail. 
After all, 10 steps toward a healthy marriage won't transform your marriage nearly as much as learning, understanding, and meditating on the 10 billion steps Jesus took toward you will. It's understanding the power of the gospel and who God is and what he's done through Christ. So as we focus on that power of God that's available at work in our lives, uh, let's go back to the passage that Lindsay just read for us a minute ago. That's our teaching passage today. So hopefully your Bibles are open, your apps are open to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 15 through 23. And as you're turning there, uh, just for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the Bible or just need a refresher, what we're seeing here is this moment where God is using a man by the name of the Apostle Paul, whose life was radically transformed by an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And he's writing under the impression of the Holy Spirit, right, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to a group of Christians living in northern Greece in the first century in a place called Ephesus. And as he's writing, he's encouraging them. He's instructing them. And and he's laying out some great truths for them to be reminded of. And what we're about to enter into is really the end of a very long sentence where Paul is rejoicing and celebrating in the spiritual blessings that belong to people who have placed their faith in Christ, or as the term is, in Christ. And so that's what we're going to pick up. Now, When you look at verse 15, here's what you see. Paul is affirming the church. He's saying, when I hear about your faith, you've got incredible faith in the Lord Jesus. And you have great love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's he's celebrating, affirming, man, you you love the Lord, you you love each other, that's great. And he says on top of that, verse 16, right, "I, I always remember you in my prayers. I thank God for you. And what I love about this moment that we're about to enter into is not only does he basically say, I'm praying for you, we're about to see how he's praying for them. You know, it's one thing to tell someone like, hey, I'm praying for you. Well, that's great. Thanks. Well, what are you praying? You're praying for wisdom? You're praying for peace? You're praying for hope? You're praying for strength? You're praying for healing? Like, what is it that you're praying for? And so it's very um, effective to not just tell people, oh, by the way, I'm praying for you, but to continue on, I'm praying for you, that God will fill in the blank give you hope, give you peace, give you healing, give you comfort, give you, you know, uh, you know, righteousness in your life, and whatever it is. And so Paul's about to do that. He says, man, I celebrate with you your faith and your love for one another, but I'm going to pray these other areas over you because there's probably room for growth there. And so we're going to look at three areas of prayer that Paul prays for these fellow believers living in Ephesus. The first area we see is this. He prays for greater wisdom and knowledge of God. I want you to make sure you heard me clearly. He didn't say, I'm praying for greater wisdom and knowledge. I'm praying for greater wisdom and knowledge of God, right? Look at verse 17. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I love the Trinitarian nature of this passage, by the way. You see that? One God. Yet he has chose to reveal himself in three distinct personhoods. All equally God, yet all distinct, but yet one God. I know it's confusing, it's a mystery, but it's real, right? So we've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all being referenced here. And he's praying that God will unlock their limited wisdom. And through the Holy Spirit unleash a supernatural wisdom in their lives and specifically a revelation of the knowledge of who God is. Basically, he's praying that they would know God more. I'm praying that you would know God more deeply. Praying that you would know God more personally. Praying that you know God more intimately. 
So when he's saying, I'm praying for wisdom and knowledge, he's not like, oh, I just want you to know more so you can help each other out. When he's praying for a revelation, he's, he's not saying this is a, a supernatural revelation of things that are unknown. He's not talking about prophetic stuff like predicting future events. He's talking about a revealing or understanding of knowledge of who God is at a deeper level. And what I love about this understanding and what we learn about God is this. He wants to be known. God is not playing hide-and-seek with us. He wants to be known. And so the Holy Spirit's impressing on Paul's heart, like pray for these believers that they would be given this wisdom, they would be given this incredible revelation of the knowledge of God. Why is that so important to us? Because our lives revolve around God. God should be, and hopefully is, the epicenter of our life. He's what makes us tick. So if you've got flawed theology or you're following a false God, or wrong beliefs about God, then you're not worshiping God, understanding God, or following God accurately. And so what a great prayer, not just for Paul to the Ephesians, but what a great prayer for us. What a great prayer for our loved ones and our family and our friends that that we would pray that God would give them wisdom and a revelation of knowledge of who God is. To know God at a deeper level more personal, more intimate way. That's the first thing he prays about, the first area. The second is he prays that they would have a greater understanding of their hope in the Lord. Look at verse 18. He's continuing in his prayer. This is how he's praying for them. I'm praying that you're going to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened or opened, right? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Beautiful language here. Paul is praying that their eyes of their heart would be open. Now, the word heart is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. When you look in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word lev. When you look in the New Testament, it's the Greek word cardia. Sound familiar? Cardiacs, where we get the word cardiac. But we know we're not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood. Whenever you see the Bible in this, uh, the word heart in this context in the Bible, it's a reference to the inner person the seat of our, our thoughts and our emotions and our will and our affections and our desires. So he's praying that the eyes of the heart would be enlightened, would be opened. And this is something that has to happen through prayer. Like, look, when all of you came to Christ, you didn't open your own heart. Like, if you ever say, like, oh, I opened my heart to the Lord, that's not true. <laughs> God opened your heart to him. That's the work of God. Think about loved ones that you know, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, people that you so desperately desire would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You want their hearts to be open, right? Well, as bad as we all want to like reach in and flick on a switch and their heart would open up, we have no ability to do that. They have no ability to do it. Who's the only one who can open up someone's heart? God. And so we need to continue to Consistently pray that God would open the eyes of the hearts of those who don't know him. But what's fascinating here is Paul's not praying for unbelievers, is he? He's praying for believers. That they would have the eyes of their heart enlightened or open to see something. What is it he wants them to see? The hope that they have. It is tough to live this life. Like, we're just getting, you know, sometimes it just feels like you're just in the corner just getting hammered, Right? Man, it's tough, and it ebbs and flows. But our hope remains. 
Our hope in who the Lord is and what he's done through Christ is like an anchor that holds us. No matter how up and down and how, how bad gets life gets, he's saying, I want your eyes to be enlightened so you can see the hope that is yours. And then he, he teases out this interesting concept. He says, and one of the ways I want you to understand the hope that you have, I want you to go back to this verse, look again. He's saying that he wants the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know that the hope which he's called them to, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. If you've been here, we've been using this word inheritance a lot over the last few weeks. And when we think about inheritance, we all know it's something that you inherit, right? Like Pastor Josh last week talked about how God is our inheritance. And through our relationship with God, everything that's God's is now ours because he's our father and we're his beloved child. And so heaven is now ours. Eternity in heaven is ours. All that we have to look forward to is ours in Christ. So God's our inheritance. Heaven's our inheritance. And all the, the amazingness of heaven that we're looking forward to is our inheritance. But what I love about this is he looks at the other side of the coin. And in the same way that God's our inheritance, guess what? We are his inheritance. Think about that. This is a very elusive, undertaught concept. And why is that important to us? Think about this. The Lord has suffered. The Lord has sacrificed. The Lord has invested in us. So therefore, he's not going to let go of us. He's not going to abandon us. He holds us fast. You, if you're in Christ, are a treasured possession of God. You are his inheritance. And he can't wait to spend eternity with you. Like we always talk, oh, I can't wait to be with God. I can't, be, I can't wait to be in heaven. You know, he's our inheritance. Like we, we think, oh, I can't wait to be there with him. But if you understand this, God is also saying, I can't wait to be with you. Because you're my treasured inheritance. And so if, if any of you inherited a million dollars, would you be like, eh, uh, maybe I'll just let that go, right? No. In the same way, the Father is not going to look at you, me, us, and Christ go, eh, no, you're mine. <laughs> I've got a hold of you, and I'm never going to let go. That shapes every single day of our life. You don't need to try to impress people. You don't need to try to live to, so other people can say good things about you. You don't need to live plagued by insecurity and, and hopelessness. Why? Because God loves you, he holds you, and you're his inheritance. So walk confidently in the hope that's yours. That's the second way that Paul's praying for these Christians. And what I love about that is in the same way that the first prayer he asks shows us that God wants to be known, what we see here is that God wants us to have that hope. He wants you to live secure in the hope that you have in Christ. And then he prays for a third area, and this is one I'm going to camp out on for a little bit because it's tied to this power thing we're talking about. The third area he prayed for these believers is he prayed that they would have a greater grasp of the power of God at work. The reason I'm camping out here is, again, because I think when you look at Christians in America um, in general, but specifically over the last year, you're going to make a, it's going to be hard for some people to make a case that you're resting and trusting in the power of God by the behavior of a lot of people who name the name of Jesus and how people are freaking out and dealing with uncertainty and putting hope in man. And so we've got to come back to realize our, our hope is in God and his power. So look about these verses again, 
speaking to the power of God at work. Look at verses 19 through 23, Ephesians 1. He's praying that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his, what's the word? Power. Toward who? Us who believe. You see that? This is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Not in the life of the unbeliever, but in the life of the believer. According to the working of his great might, and then he gives examples, listen to this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is praying that these Christians, you got one man who loves God, praying for a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ who love God, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work on behalf of those who believe. And so when we talk about God's strength, look at the word that's used, immeasurable. You can't measure it. Think of all the other words. When we think about God's might and God's ability and God's strength and God's power, it's unlimited, it's unending, it's unrivaled. Nobody's more powerful than our God. And this great might is given, is accessed by those who are in Christ. And then we see these these layers of examples that he gives by just looking at Christ. Like we could talk about God's power in creation, over his uh, supernatural intervention, over the history of mankind with different events we see in scriptures. But he just laser focuses on one of the most powerful demonstrations of his power, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he says, look, God's power is demonstrated by raising Jesus from the grave. Death can't stop God's power. Death is what intimidates mankind more than anything else. Nobody wants to die. Christians, we we might say we're not afraid to die, but we're not looking forward to it, and we're not rushing after it, right? So we're not afraid, but, but, but God's conquered death. Again, the empty tomb is the Lord's victory flag over death. And so the same power of God that raised Christ from the grave is also the same power of God that saves us in faith in Jesus. It's available and it's accessible for those in Christ. And one day, will also raise us from the grave and our loved ones in Christ from the grave. That's that's the power that he's demonstrating here. Also, God's power is demonstrated by Christ ruling and reigning from his heavenly throne with all authority. Now, I know it doesn't seem like it because Jesus has not fully and finally established his kingdom forever. He's on a timeline, which only he knows. But we see here that we can't underestimate his authority that's still in place right now. Jesus has authority over the earthly realm, the heavenly realm, every piece of sand, every blade of grass, every molecule of water, every strand of DNA, every star, every galaxy, every law of the universe, every atom, every human being, every angelic being, Jesus rules over with all authority. And it's his name that's above every name. There is no other name above the name of Jesus. No human leader in the past, no present human leader, no future human leader, no king, queen, prime minister, prince, 
No celebrity. No one has the name of Jesus Christ. No other name is exalted or as powerful as the name of Jesus. And a really interesting piece of evidence for that that maybe you've never thought of is the fact that people use the name Jesus Christ in vain and as a curse word. Like, think about that. Why his name? There's a lot of other names out there. Why in a moment of frustration, why in a moment of, you know, of reckless slander, do people take the name of Jesus and step on it? It's because it's the best name. There is no greater name. So they reach for the top of the top of the top of the name pyramid to grab it, to pull it down in the frustration. Like, I've never heard someone go, ah, Buddha. It's never happened. Allah, Confucius. You know, maybe some of you have thought about using the name of your in-laws, but I haven't really heard people like, you know, pull their in-laws' name down and use it. They might use a curse word against, you know, but why do people go after the name of Jesus? Because it's the most glorious, exalted name in existence. That's our Savior, Amen. The name above all names. Jesus has no rival. He has no equal. Also, God's power is demonstrated by not Jesus, just Jesus' headship over all of creation, but specifically the church, because God has a specific plan, a special plan for the church. All believers in Jesus from every corner of the world, the church, united as the body of Christ, his hands, his feet, his mouth, doing his will under his headship. See, God's power fills the earth and the universe with the knowledge and authority and glory of his crucified and risen son. And one of the ways that he fills the world up with that is he fills up the church with himself. See how that fill language at the end of this passage? He fills up the church with himself, and then he fills the world with the church to help get the message of Christ out there. And one day when Christ returns, he will complete the extent of his reign over creation fully and finally. And when that happens, Jesus is going to perfectly restore all heaven and all earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the new heaven and new earth will be free of sin and death and pain and sorrow. There's going to be no injustice. There's going to be no slavery. There's going to be no more... um, uh, selfishness, no more natural disasters, no more conflict, no more broken hearts, no more racism, no more disease, no more suffering. And the new heaven and the new earth will be restored to perfection, and there's going to be this immeasurable greatness of God experienced by all. His power will be experienced by all in a very visceral way, and that's our future a future resurrection, a future eternal life, a future freedom from sin in relationship with God, enjoying Him forever. So the power of God has been demonstrated in the past. It's at work in the present, and it will be fully manifested and experienced when Christ returns in the future. And so when we look at all this, we realize God's immeasurable power and might that raised Jesus from the grave, that seated Christ in the heavenlies, that gave him authority over all, is the power that God directs where? Toward the believers. You know, this isn't the only place we see this, by the way. This is not a, 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 one, ver- a one and done verse concept, right? Let's, let's just look at a few verses. I'm going to rapid fire 
through some verses. I want you to read through them with me. And every time you see the word power, say it out loud with me, okay? 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Colossians 1.10-11, you don't, you don't see the 10 on the screen, but tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here we go. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all ask or think according to the power at work, where? Within us. Within us. Does God want you to experience his power at work in your life? Yes. Yes. Then why don't we? (laughs) Why do we have power outages? Why do we try to fight for power when that, that battle's already been won? And now he's been giving us power to fight with, to fight your temptations, to fight your sin, to fight the, the things that are displeasing to God, to fight through discouragement. He's given us power to do so. F.F. F. Bruce, a theologian, I captured this in my study. I really liked the way he put it. He says, if the death of Christ is the chief demonstration of the love of God, then the chief demonstration of his power is the resurrection of Christ. And it is especially important that believers should know the power of God because the power by which he raised Jesus from the dead is the power that worketh in us. The power by which we are enabled to repudiate or reject the dominion of sin and walk with Christ in the newness of life. God wants you as a follower of Christ to experience his power. God's power is at work on our lives and available for All those moments we feel powerless, helpless, frustrated, paralyzed. He's there for us. And what I love about this moment, and don't miss this, Paul is not praying for the Ephesians that God would send them this power. He is praying that they would recognize they already have it and possess it. Brothers and sisters, whenever we talk about the power of God, We're not summoning the power of God down. It already came down in Christ's incarnation. When we're praying about the power of God, we need the same prayer, that God would open our eyes to see that we already possess it. It's already there. We just need to access it and utilize it like God intends. So we're not fighting for power. We're fighting with power. Now, I know where some of you might be going and where some people will go with this, especially in Western America right now. We can say, like, look, I hear what you're saying, but it's just too hard, and it's going to get harder. In fact, Christians are going to be le- even um, less effective as time goes on because right now we're, we're living in an increasingly secularized society. We're living in a society that's becoming more and more hostile to the Christian faith, and persecution is going to increase and be on the rise, and persecution will thwart God's plan. And in fact, you know, uh, with all the immorality and all the hostility to the Christians, like, we're in trouble. There's some people that are giving into that. We can't give into that false thinking. That's not a biblically supported idea. You see the opposite. Let, let me just give you one modern day example. If 
persecution and difficulty and culture made it hard or difficult or impossible for God to do his work, then you would imagine the most persecuted places would have very little fruit, right? That not very many people would be coming to Christ and that the church wouldn't be growing. Right now, do you know where the church is growing most and where most evangelism is getting traction in the entire world? Iran. Iran. Close second to that, Afghanistan. Okay, highly Muslim concentrated, deep persecution. You want to follow Jesus? It will cost you your life, your family's lives, your job, your building, you name it. All right? In fact, right now, Operation World, this agency that looks at uh, statistics on evangelism, says that right now the statistic for evangelism in Iran is 19.6%. Afghanistan is 16.7%. The U.S., 0.8%. Got lots of churches. All of us probably have three, four, five Bibles at home. No, oppor- no lack of opportunity. We can meet in small groups without fear of being arrested or beaten or killed. Wouldn't you think that we would actually have more fruit? So we can't give in to this kind of thinking. I mean, just to put it in perspective, when you look even closer at Iran, over, over the last 40 years, missionaries have been kicked out of the country. Evangelism has been outlawed. Bibles were banned. Several pastors were killed. But God's work's not thwarted now, is it? You want to talk about the power of God? Who are we to say what God's going to do or not going to do? In fact, historically, when persecution increases, so do conversions and the growth of the church. A couple of fun stories out of Iran. There was a man named Kamran. He was a violent man. He used to sell drugs and weapons. One day, a friend gave him a New Testament Bible. He read it for five consecutive days, fell in love with Jesus became a believer. Now he, his family and friends watched him for months and watched a transformation in his life, and now he leads a secret church out of his house. There was another man named Riza. He was a mullah, which is a Muslim scholar. He was hoping to become an ayatollah, a Shiite leader. One day while studying in an Islamic seminary, someone had snuck a New Testament Bible into that place. Nice little bold action, right? He just, out of curiosity, opened it up and started reading it and was shooken by what he read. Gave his life to Christ. Now he's a church planter in the regions of Iran. See, God's not limited by whatever we see going on around us. And so in the face of several personal, national uh, increases of persecution, the Iranian church has seen more people come to Christ in 20 years than in 13 centuries combined. Do we want to talk about what God can and can't do? Do we want to say, well, if this happens in culture, then God can't do something? That's not the power of God at work. And honestly, we don't live in a country that's really that persecuted. I read a quote this last week that really stung because I think it's more true than we want to admit. A person said, I'm so sick of Christians in America claiming persecution. You aren't being persecuted for loving Jesus. You're being held accountable for not acting like him. See, if we love Jesus and we believe he has all the power, what are we afraid of? What's really going to shake us? What's going what's to shut your mouth from telling people about Jesus? What's going to close your Bible? What's going to shut you down from meeting in life groups? Well, they might, okay, we'll meet in secret. We'll read in secret. I'm praying for you even though you don't know it. God continues to do his work no matter what goes on in culture.
Do you understand what I'm saying now when I say we're not fighting for power? We're fighting with power. That's what God's given us. You know, what I love about this moment is this whole passage pretty much is a prayer. We just taught through a prayer. This is what Paul was praying for the Ephesian church. And this is really a great way that we can be praying for each other. And so as we focus on the gospel, when we focus on these truths, as believers in Jesus, we quickly realize we're not fighting for power but with power. But how do you access that power? Three really simple, not new applications. The first is you got to know Christ. You can't have the power of God if you don't know God. And God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died and rose and who ascended and who's coming back. And so if you don't know Christ, if any of you online are watching don't know Christ, your first step is to learn about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And his invitation is open to take that step. And we'd love to tell you about it. If you're on site, you can meet anyone in the foyer with a yellow lanyard and say, I want to know more about a relationship with Jesus. Whether you're on-site or online, another way that you can take that next step is get your phone out right now and text the word Jesus to our CVC response number. And we've got a person there waiting just to help you take whatever next steps you're ready for to give your life to Christ. The second way is to grow in Christ. This is where a lot of us struggle. A lot of us know Christ, but we're not growing in Christ. Our Bibles are closed more than they're open. Uh, we're, we're, We're kind of powerless because we're prayerless and we're not praying and talking to God and being before the Lord. And we're not in a regular context of Christian community encouraging other believers and being encouraged by other believers. Look, once you're isolated, be prepared to feel powerless. Because God uses the church to encourage the church. And if you remove yourself from the community, how on earth are you really going to be that strong? Got to be plugged in with other brothers and sisters in Christ to grow in Christ. So crack your Bibles open. Be in prayer. Be in community. One little extra tool we've added for this series to just encourage you uh, is just a prayer that's been crafted off each of the teaching passages that you can pray through once, I don't know, multiple times a week if you want. Just text the word SEEK to our response number and that prayer uh, link will be sent to your phone. You just touch it and it takes you right to the blog and you can read through that and pray through that. And so you got to know Jesus and you got to um, grow in Christ. The other thing you have to do is You've got to walk in the truth of the gospel each day. Everything we're talking about, you might know it, but you've got to walk in it. Which means, when the temptation comes, when the frustration comes, when the discouragement comes, you've got to preach the gospel back to yourself. You've got to pray that gospel. You've got to pull up memorized scriptures. You've got to fight right there. And remember, when you're fighting in those moments, you're not fighting for power. You're fighting what? With power. You gotta walk in the truths of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we've learned about you today. You have taught us through your word that you want to be known. You want our hope to be in you, nothing else, no one else. And that you have given us power that we can access as your children. Your immeasurable, mighty power at work in the lives of believers. Father, forgive us for doubting that power. Forgive us when we have given mankind more power in our minds than you. We've allowed the world and some other voices in our life, the the prophets of doom and gloom out there, to convince us that if we don't do this or if we don't do that, then somehow you're limited. God, that's foolish thinking. Call us back 
to you and to your truth. Fix our eyes on you. Open the eyes of our hearts to see you fresh and to know you more deeply. God, I pray for any of those right now in this room or watching online that need you as Savior, give them the courage to take that first step of belief. For those of us who already know you, help us to grow in you and walk in the truths of the gospel that you keep preaching to us so that every single day of our life can be impacted by it. We ask in Jesus' name. And we all sit together.